Allison, Allie, what do you go by now? I go by Allison now. Allison now? Because when I knew you, um, God, it's we were just talking about this. We were like 18, 17, 18, yeah. 19, right around there. Around like 14, 15 years. Yeah, it was big time. Allie, that's what you went by. But you yeah. go by Allison now? Yes. Yeah. Is there a reason? Um, when I kind of started my own professional business, it seemed weird to go by Allie. What? So I kind of went from that to just starting going by Allison. And then I also had like three different volunteers that were helping me at the time who were all named Allie. None of them had the name Allison, but all of them went by Allie for the shorts of their name. And so it got really confusing. So I was like, I'm just going to, just going to take that step up. There you go. Hey, um, first off, I want to thank you for coming on the show and having a discussion with me about life and how you've been and how you found yourself into a very interesting career choice. So when I met you, I was working at a music store and you were working at Subway, I believe. <laughs> yeah. And you were also doing, weren't you at like a camp, like Camp Christopolis or something like oh, that? Oh yeah. Well, that has been a really long time. Yeah. So I used to um, work up at Camp Christopolis and it's like a camp for people with disabilities. Um, and I worked in the equestrian center with the horses. With so the I horses. would teach the kids to, I'd help teach the kids to ride. You've always had a love for animals yes. as long as I've known you. Um, and you turn that into a career and you're like self-made in your own business and everything. What made you get that love for animals? Was it just when you were a child, you were around animals or? I think I was born that way. Like, I think I came out wanting to be around dogs. Um, I think like the earliest that I really realized how much I love them, I was like five and, uh, I was asking my mom, like, how do they talk to each other? She's like, they don't. I'm like, well, they have to, or they'd fight with each other more, you know, like they have to have some way that they're talking to each other because they just know when to play and when to not play. And, and like from that on, I was just been super interested in like learning how dogs communicate with each other and how to teach them and how to like, just be closer with them. Wow. And you, d correct me if I'm wrong. I thought, didn't you, um, work in like grooming or something for a while? Yeah. So I've done a lot. Like I started with in high school, I did guide dogs for the blind, uh, as a puppy raiser. And I also did grooming right after high school. And I didn't, I liked grooming, but I liked learning how to teach dogs to be groomed. And so I'd always spend way too much time on them. And I always got in trouble because they're like, you just need to get through these dogs. I'm like, but the dog's scared. So I'm going to take the time to teach a dog to not be scared. And like, that is not what you're here for. <laughs> were, were you working at like PetSmart or yeah, something like in a, in a PetSmart grooming place? That's, I always like have the utmost respect for groomers. I use a, a local groomer. I'm here in Salt Lake County and I don't know how she does it with my dogs because they are just wiggle worms. I, I've tried it myself and to be able to groom an animal is like, it's got to take skill because my dogs, when I did it, always had like patches of yeah. fur. It was uneven. It just looked, looked terrible. You get, you would like buy those, um, like grooming kits with mm -hmm. the instructions and stuff and never works. Yeah. So like I've, I've done that like two or three times, but I've always took them to groomers. How long did it take to learn how to groom animals? I mean, while I was doing the grooming there, I was just a, a bather. So I watched a lot of the grooming and then we did like the minor stuff, like their feet and their like a sanitary area and stuff like that. But um, after that, because I had a little bit of a foundation everywhere I went after with training, I also did a lot of grooming, you know, dogs who needed baths and needed, you know, or were being too aggressive in a grooming salon or something. And so it kind of like helped kind of shape where I'm at. And now I do all my own grooming for the dogs that I train that stay with me, um, which has probably saved me thousands of dollars. Oh yeah. <laughs> so. I, I, I bet. So, so you've gone from horses to dogs 
and you've made it. When did you officially become your own like business owner and start making money with this dog training stuff you do? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I worked with dogs under another trainer for a really long time. Uh, it's always good to have like a mentor that knows what they're doing when you're learning. And I had a lot of different apprenticeships that I did to learn different styles and everything. And I kind of just picked the things that I liked from each type of training that I learned. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had been training for gosh, it was 2017. And I think I had already been training for like eight years under other people. And I decided to, um, take that step to go ahead and try it myself, which definitely is different than working oh. under another trainer. <laughs> I bet because now not only are you doing all the work, but you're also doing all the books and stuff like that. Taxes. Mm -hmm. Do you have employees or is it just you? Right now it's just me. Um, I actually had employees and did a whole business and everything. And then it kind of went under during COVID. So, um, since then I'm just doing my own thing. But at the time, like, yeah, I was having to do all the books myself, which I didn't know how to do. So I had to learn. And I actually did a lot of trade work. So I'd find clients who already knew how to do that stuff. And I would train their dogs for free and they would teach me how to do my books. Oh, that's awesome. So I did that for a long time, which still I feel like I need help. So now I just pay someone to do all that. So yeah, I don't blame you. an outside company. That That's interesting that you say that you, you had employees and you were like growing a business and then COVID hit. That was astronomically out of this world on how it affected industry. But being a small business owner, that must have been devastating. It was definitely devastating. And I did not have enough of a cushion. Um, I had actually just moved the business out of my home and decided to rent a place to do daycare and things like that and like closed on that and then COVID hit. So they closed down everything the first month of me owning that place. Oh <laughs> so, my God. And I was renting it, so I wasn't owning it, but it's still like that was an expense I wasn't expecting to have while not being able to work. Yeah. You know, and I didn't have much to sit back on. Somehow we made it through the first year and then the second year we were pretty strained, you know, and then it wasn't until like the end of the second year, I finally was just like, I just can't keep up because we're just never going to catch back up. You know, we started behind and then had to just let it go. So when you, when you let a business go like that, did you have to file like business bankruptcy or anything like that? Or you just decided we're just going to close it and dissolve the debts and everything and pay things off or luckily I had decided to call it when we weren't that far into debt you know not we were in pretty far debt but it wasn't like so bad that I needed to file bankruptcy and I'm actually now done paying all that off but oh. I spent the last two years paying everything off so and there were some things in place for people who went under during COVID where like certain certain expenses were just dissolved for you oh that's nice like uh like grants and business protection and stuff it was like more that. of like um like if you had utilities and stuff on a building that you went under on they just oh they forgot that and that kind of stuff like the little things like that i'm not sure exactly which ones honestly but <laughs> there were a lot of things that i should have had to pay and then i didn't have to pay them that, so that was nice that you got assistance on that's yeah. that's nice um so currently you're doing dog training um and you're getting it up and going again what is your primary like training model? Like how do you train these dogs? Do you train dogs that have temperament issues or are you training dogs for like um, special needs? What, what do you do with your training? So most of my career was spent doing behavioral training for dogs with um, like behavioral issues. And it wasn't until my business went under and I decided that that just wasn't for me anymore. I didn't realize how burnt out I was on it because it's, you know, it's a lot of stress to work with dogs who have behavioral issues. Um, and during all the time I was doing the behavioral issues, I also did service dogs and for psychiatric and uh, mobility and, um, child assist for like autism, cognitive disabilities, things like that. 
Uh, and then after my business went under, I now only train for service dogs. Oh, okay. So for a while, what I was doing is I was helping owners who were trying to train their own dogs and they would send them to me for months and they'd stay with me and I would train them. Um, but it's really hard to do that because I didn't test them. I didn't check their temperaments. I didn't do their health testing. I didn't do any of the background stuff. I just have to trust that the owner did it. And even if the dog doesn't work out as a service dog, they still have to pay me to train it. You know, so I didn't really like that. Um, I still do that from time to time if people need it. But for the most part now I go out and find rescue dogs and I temperament test like a hundred dogs each time because they have to find the right dog. They have to have you know, just the right stuff. They can't have any behavioral issues. They have to have been out in public a lot, you know, and usually they come to me with like, they're not potty trained or they're crazy on leash or they jump on people or they bark or like things that most owners don't know how to fix. But for me, I can fix that easy, you know? And so I pick those dogs that are great dogs. They just need a little focus. And then I keep them. I do all their health testing. Uh, they live with me for three to four months, you know? And then when I place them with people, I actually like fly them out to where they live anywhere in the United States we do a training course that's hands-on for a few days, usually three, uh, depending on sometimes mobility dogs I do longer because they have a lot more tasks that need to be taught. But um, uh, I'll fly them out there and um, usually they come with like lifetime training support and everything. And so I just do a lot of work with the people as well to make sure they know how to do it. Um, and I just do them one at a time right now. Wow, so you do this all over America. How do you find your clientele? Usually through social media. I have a, a business page, or a website as well. Um, what is that called? Uh, Foyce Foundation, foycefoundation.com, and it's Foyce Foundation Service Dogs. So, And I actually sell them as started prospect dogs, but usually they're already trained enough that they could be finished. But I insist that the people keep them as in training for one year. And then at the end of that year, they send me a video showing me them working in public and the tasks that they're doing and things like that, just to make sure they're up to my standards. And then I send them the letter of completion, just saying that they've followed through with the training and that the dog has done the correct training for service work. And this certifies the animal as an ADA certified service animal? So there's when actually no certification for service dogs. Oh, really? The only time you'll find people saying that they need to be certified is a scam because they want you to pay them to certify them. Gotcha. Um, but there's very specific criteria that they have to have. For one, the person has to have a disability. They have to have a doctor's note saying that they have that disability and that they would benefit from a dog. Uh, and then the dog has to meet a ton of criteria. They have to have the best behavior, obedience. You know, they can't have any behavioral issues. They have to be perfectly under control. They have to have, I think in Utah, it's one task, but I always train at least three just to cover all the bases because it's different in every state. Mm -hmm. So, Well, do you, um, do you ever do, there's that other term that I hear go around a lot, uh, not service animal. What do they call that? Are you thinking like emotional support? Yeah. Do you do those at all? Or? So emotional support dogs don't have to be trained. All emotional support means is that they can live with you and that it only exempts them from some like laws from people's homes like if if like an apartment complex doesn't want you to have dogs if they have more than four properties in utah at least uh, if they have more than four properties that they're renting out they have to abide by the ada laws and allow your emotional support dog to be there but emotional support dogs don't have any public access rights they don't have to have any training they don't have to have anything so you'll meet emotional support dogs who are really naughty you know and sometimes people see that and they'll mislabel them thinking like this is a service dog and then people see it and like wow service dogs are out of control but it's actually just because that was probably an emotional support dog and not a service dog yeah I, I can't tell you how kind of like irritated I get with people who claim they have a service animal and it's not a trained service animal because I I do think it puts a very 
um, negative connotation on the service animal industry or not industry, but the training that you have to, yeah, the community, there's a better word for it. Um, my dad, he was seeing this lady for a while and she had this really expensive designer breed dog. I can't even remember what the breed was, but she really kind of like gamed the system, got one of those service animal vests, Mm -hmm. all this stuff. And it clearly wasn't trained for anything. And I think she just used that to get it, you know, on airplanes, into restaurants, things like that. And I was, I remember I went to a restaurant with them and I was so embarrassed. She had it in one of those like push strollers (laughs) and it was just barking, but the people would be like, is this a service animal? And there's like very specific criteria that they can only ask, right? There's also very specific rules that people are allowed to ask. And if the person says, yes, it's a service dog, they can't really push it. So there's nothing they can really do. Yeah. So it's really just kind of like an an honor system of like if it is or not. And honestly, like it's probably an emotional support dog. And most people who have an emotional support dog probably should have a service dog. You know, they need it for a reason. If they're feeling like they need to take it out in public with them, they probably have social anxiety and issues like that. They should get a service dog. But training a service dog is expensive. It's expensive. It's time consuming, you know, and people just don't want to have to put in the effort. So they'll just take their dog with them. And the problem with that, not only is it embarrassing, you know, to have a dog doing that, but also, you know, you could have a dog that is trained. And this has happened to me multiple times where I'll have service dogs in quotations, <laughs> with their vest on who have like charged us in stores and like tried to attack the dog I'm working, which scares the dog I'm working with. And then the next time we go to that store, I now have to retrain them to be good in that store because they're worried, you know, so that person's fake service dog has now damaged my real service, real dog, service you know? dog. So that it becomes a really big problem. So now when you, when you start with a service animal, do you, do you find your client first or do you begin training the dog and then sell it to a client that finds you? I have like a waiting list usually. Um, sometimes like this time of year, the waiting list is pretty empty just because it's Christmas and nobody wants to be on it right now. So, mm-hmm. you know, but typically I have a waiting list of, of the different types of services. I have three different waiting lists, one for each type of service dog, because I'll pick out the dog and the dog is what gets to pick what kind of service dog it is. So, you know, like the last golden retriever I trained loved carrying things around in his mouth. He was fairly large, you know, so he made a really good mobility dog. He was really good at helping. He couldn't do like weight bearing because he was a little too small for that, but he loved doing like medication retrievals. He could open doors and turn light switches off and like all the things that like just make someone who has a mobility problem, just their life so much easier. I now have another golden retriever exactly the same and she hates picking things up oh, she's really? not going to be a mobility dog she's probably going to go I'm, I'm advertising her as like a psychiatric for ptsd and things like that gotcha so you so you find the dog first and then get it to your clients that would be on that waiting list what's what is the time you know like i'm trying to think of how long it takes me a layman person just to teach a dog to sit. (laughs) So like for you to train these dogs, and I've seen your videos on Facebook and stuff where they're like turning off light switches and retrieving items and stuff. What's a general like timeline from start to finish with a dog? Yeah. And it's, it's hard because every person is different. You know, I have a lot more experience so I can get a dog to do something within minutes, you know, where it might take you weeks, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so it just kind of depends. Usually though, if I was starting at like a puppy, they really can't start task training until they're like a year and a half. So if I was raising a puppy, I would just do socialization and I would just work on basic leash skills and things like that until they're like older. 
Um, but because I go find rescue dogs who already have most of that done just because families took their dog with them places, you know, um, I only have to add on the obedience behavior and tasks and that I can do within a few months. So usually they'll stay with me anywhere from three to four months. They aren't finished, but I get them started enough that they know their tasks and they're completing them. They're doing them, uh, actively organically, at least 65% of the time, meaning, I will, will randomly be sitting in like a restaurant and I'll start doing the thing that they're supposed to notice. And then they're catching it on their own. Um, it has to be at least 65% before I'll send them anywhere. Uh, and most finished service dogs, it's like an 85% rate. They're, they're not robots. You don't expect them to catch every single one. Um, and then once they go in the home, like I said, I make them keep them as a training dog for at least a year. So it's usually around like a year and a half of like training, but really once they've been delivered, they're so good that they're usually like, wow, do I even need the in-training vest? And I just say, yes, you need to for a year just to make sure that the dog will continue to be good for you because you're not me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, when you, when you pick your dogs, are you pretty good at like saying, you know, this dog, I think it's going to work out really well. Or do you have to do a lot of like dog returns where it's like, this one's not going to work. It happens from time to time. Um, most of the time I'm really good at just, I've just been around dogs enough. I can feel their energy most of the time Mm -hmm. and I know what to look for and the little red flags to watch for that are going to become bigger problems. You know, that they need to have a certain confidence level because being out in public is scary, you know? And so if they're kind of insecure dogs, that's going to be really hard for them. Um, but every now and then I get surprised. I have a dog right now that kind of surprised me. She was great when I met her. Super sweet. She was great with my son who I usually take for the evaluations cause he's on the spectrum and he kind of triggers dogs a little bit, which is what I want to see is how they're going to act around that. She was really great. And I had her for a week and the first week they're home with me, they're always on a leash tied to me or in a kennel or doing training. Like they're never just loose. And after that first week, I start letting them drag the leash and having a little bit of freedom. They start eating with the group rather than in their kennels. And that first, after that first week, I fed her out in the group with the, with the dogs and she did okay. And then when I picked up the bulls, another dog went to sniff where the bull was and she attacked it without any warning. So I'm like, okay. So that one surprised me because she'd been doing really good for a whole week. And it wasn't until I, you know, if I hadn't put her with the other dogs, I would have never caught that, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's good that I did. And now she's being rehomed as just a pet. Gotcha. So it just goes back to whoever the foster was or the rescue organization. Yeah. So if it's like, I usually, I usually try to go through shelters or rehomes rather than rescues because the rescues have so many awesome resources that they're likely to find good homes where some of the other ones don't. And so I try to go for those ones first. Uh, If it was a rescue, they usually have contracts where you have to return them. But if it isn't from them, I usually like if it came from an owner, I let them know what's going on and and ask them if they want the dog back. Usually they say no because they were rehoming for a reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, after that, I usually just rehome them to someone new. Uh, If usually, though, too, once they've been in my home, they've been already getting a lot of training. So I usually rehome them for a little fee and then they come with lifetime training support and I do a training course with the person. So they get like free training. And the training, the amount I charge for the dog is like way less than I would even charge for like my most basic training program for an owner. Gotcha. Does that um, saying fly, um, you can't teach an old dog new tricks? Or is it like you can take a dog from, you know, three to 12 and always train them? So it's not necessarily you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I mean, you can't teach people, old people new tricks. That's really what that is. <laughs> but, um, but typically for service dogs, I pick between a year and a half and three because their last mental development happens at, at one and a half and then their personality solidifies. They go through mental maturity around three. Oh, really? Um, so, and it doesn't mean they can't be taught something new. However, it takes a lot, the older they get, the lot longer it takes to get them solid on something. 
And same with younger. It's like there's this nice sweet spot. If they're too young, they're too young to learn. If they're too old, they're just a little more stubborn. It takes a little longer to get them to do it. And with how long it takes, then they only have a few years of working before they have to retire and all this stuff. So it's better to get them when they're fairly young, but not babies. So about one and a half to three is what you yeah. said? That's usually my what, what the area has to be for me to take them. I had no idea that dogs, so that's like humans where our brains develop up to like 25 or something and then our frontal cortex is done developing so that's like dogs as well yeah and i I always say like one and a half is like an 18 year old and Mm -hmm. it's they have kind of the attitude of an 18 year old too (laughs) Uh, and then around three is when they kind of settle down like a 25 year old so it's very much like that so have you been happy with your choice to become a business owner or do you feel super overwhelmed at times with being a business owner because there's give and takes to it right like nine to five job you're not you don't have to do the hustle you just show up to work get your paycheck go home have your retirement but you have to like do you ever stop working because it's your own business you're just go 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 right yeah and they live in my home so i'm just kind of going all the time and I, i honestly if you ever ask a business owner if it's always great. They're lying if they say yes. So <laughs> it's, there's definitely a lot of stress that goes to it. And honestly, like I wanted to go back to just working for someone else, but I have a lot of ideas of how dogs should be trained and they're not always the same as everyone else. And I've been doing it a long time. So there are a lot of the places w- that would hire me. I've been training longer than the owners, you know? Oh, yeah. And so, and that's not really my place to come in and like tell them how to do their job. So I have to come in and just conform to whatever they're doing, whether I know it's right or not. You know, and so for me, it's more of like I'm experienced enough in this field that I kind of have to work for myself at this point. But I have considered not working in this field. You know, this is it's it's not like a money maker, honestly, like service dogs cost a lot of money. But if you look at how long it takes to train them, how many hours goes into it, you know, all the medical expenses that they have to do, all the health testing that you have to get done, like I'm usually breaking even if maybe a little bit over, but most of the time it's just breaking even. So on general, if you don't mind me asking, what does a service animal like contract from you cost for someone? So one of my started ones that I've done the work for usually is between 10 and 15,000. Gotcha. Um, But if I'm training for an owner, I usually charge around 5,000 a month, which ends up being around the same because I keep the dogs that I buy for a similar amount of time. Well, yeah. And then you got to think about you're doing, like you said, all the medical testing, food, Mm -hmm. all of that stuff. How many dogs do you currently have living with you? So I typically only do one training dog at a time. Oh, really? Um, But I have a service dog of my own. My son has a service dog. And then we have our failed one that we got. And because it's Christmas time, no one's going to take her right now. So she's just going to be stuck with us for a little while. So we have four dogs uh, in our house. So you have a service animal for you yourself and a service animal for your son? Yeah. So... I have one for me. I have PTSD. Um, I honestly haven't used her in a while and she's really small. And then my son develops, he has some other issues, you know, and, and he needed a service dog. And my service dog was too small to just cross train and give to him, even because I wasn't really using her. But he has a lot of violent out- outbursts and things like that. So he needed a larger dog that could handle that. And so we ended up having to get him his own. And my service dog kind of just got put on the back burner. She goes with us if, her, if his is out of commission, you know, if her, his is sick or something. Did you train your own service animals or did someone else train those animals for you? Oh, no, I did my own. Did your own? Yeah. That's... That's really like admirable because you you understand the use of a service animal while you're training them for other people. Because I think a lot of people um, like so I do a, a class that I teach at my uh, work. I do all of our special needs training and stuff. 
and I'll get comments all the time about service animals. Yeah, right. And I just have to train these people how to handle service animals on transportation. Like, yeah. you know, you can only ask two questions. Yeah, you can't you know about that. <laughs> yep. I know about all of that. And it's like, you gotta, but sometimes the comments I'll hear from some of the students, I'm like, I don't think you guys realize how much a service animal can actually help someone. Yeah. It's like someone who's never had to use crutches being like, why are they falling all the time when they're trying to use crutches? You know, if you don't have a disability, it's really hard for you to understand why it's so important. And also for me, I've used a service dog for so many years that I know the things that the dog needs to do. I know the problems that they might run into. So I just pre-train that. So the dog doesn't have those issues. So with, with a, so I understand like the service animals with, uh, regard to like guide dogs and support and, um, like you were saying, what was that, a uh, retrieval when they are working with someone who may have like severe anxiety or PTSD, what, uh, type of tasks do those animals do for those people? Yeah. So we call that like a psychiatric service dog helping with a psychiatric disability. Um, and so what I usually teach for that one is like anxiety alert. A lot of people will do, you can do scent work for that to do it, but because it's going to go to someone different and they might be out of state, I usually don't go for scent. I go for visual tasks. Um, a lot of people will tap their legs when they're anxious, they'll pick at their skin and they end up like hurting themselves without realizing it until they're bleeding. And they're like, Oh, I've been picking at my face for 20 minutes, you know? So I teach the dog to recognize those signals and then to alert the person by either putting their head on their leg. If it's a dog who loves using its paws, I'll have them gently put a paw up on their leg, you know? So it just depends on what the dog's preferences are. And then I'll train it into a task. So you almost teach it like a command. So instead of saying like, do this, me scratching at my face is the command. Is the command. And then they, that lets the person know, hey, you may be going into a panic attack or you may be. Yeah. And then there's also some tasks like helping lead them out of situations because a lot of people with anxiety disassociate. And so it's hard for them to like make conscious, good decisions. And so the dog will guide them to an exit. Um, And then the biggest one that I teach, and I teach this for all service dogs, no matter what they're going for is deep pressure therapy where they'll lay across your chest to help you come down from anxiety attacks. Uh, I've never met someone who had a mobility disability who didn't also have anxiety because really? their, their other disabilities cause the anxiety. So it's good to have that one no matter what the disability is. Wow. That's, that's cool. I'm, I mean, I've, I have <clears throat> so much like respect for people that do training. Like I train humans and I know how hard that is. <laughs> you Dogs train animals. <laughs> <laughs> you might be right actually on that one. You know, and there is a lot of it like with, with the training of service dogs, you do also have to train the people because a dog who behaves for me, if I were to just hand them off to someone, they wouldn't behave for that person. They might be do- good for like two weeks because that's how long it'll last. And mm-hmm. then if they're not being consistent and following through, the dog will just revert backwards. Now, are there breeds that you kind of stay away from with service animal work? Or is that perception that layman folk that don't know a lot about animals, dogs, per se, like me? So let's just example here. Uh, pit bulls. Like a lot of people think pit bulls are just the nastiest vermin dog that are just trained for one purpose and it's fighting and they're bad like is that something that you have to watch out for breed wise or is that kind of a a stigma that people put on animals that isn't really true so i will say though that i've met i've met good service dogs in almost every breed 
So there's not like specific breeds that you have to stay away from. However, like dogs do have natural inclinations, you know, like a cane corso, they're bred for protection and they tend to not be great with people there. That would not be my first choice to pick for a service dog, you know? And so like when you're looking at training a service dog, they call it washing out if the dog doesn't make it to the end, to the finish line of being a service dog. And your, your likelihood of that happening goes up a lot. If you pick a dog who has the breed of a dog, like, you know, like Malinois, I wouldn't use a Malinois because the type of services I do, but some people love them because they need a more drivey dog. So it just depends on the situation and where they came from. I wouldn't go out and get like a police dog line for like a child (laughs) to go for like autism or something. So, um, personally I try to stick to golden retrievers, um, and poodles, standard poodles. I won't go for big dogs usually because they can work in a lot more environments. It kind of opens up a lot more doors. Um, but I will sometimes do doodles. Doodles are kind of like a, he's kind of a hit or miss because they sometimes are hypoallergenic. They're sometimes not. They sometimes are calm. They're sometimes not. Sometimes they swallow things. A lot of them do. So you have to be really careful about that because that's not something someone wants to deal with. Um, so they're kind of just like a, a mixed basket. So I'm pretty, I do a lot extra testing when it comes to doodles, but I will sometimes pick them. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I find it funny that a lot of people, like you have the people that solely judge the dog by the breed and like won't even give the dog a chance. And then you got people like me when I was younger who don't even read the characteristics of the dog (laughs) and go adopt an Alaskan Malamute combo. And I think, do you remember that dog I had? Her name was Luna. She had a blue eye and a green eye and she was massive. I don't, I feel like I, she was in your yard a few times when I came, but I didn't ever like really interact with her. Yeah. I, I was stupid teenager. I think I was 18 or 19. I was like, you know what? I want the biggest, baddest dog ever. Yeah. And I want it to look like it runs around in Alaska, you know? So I went and got that Alaskan Malamute and just did not realize the amount of training that needs to go into those dogs and the amount of like physical exertion they need to get out yeah and a lot of times people will make the mistake of like well i'm a new trainer so i need to get a smart dog so the dog can make up for my idiocy but what happens is the dog outsmarts you (laughs) so (laughs) so if you're not an experienced trainer you need to get a dumb dog go find a golden retriever a king charles cavalier like the ones that won't test you like if you say that the sky is down they're gonna say okay let's do that you know like we'll believe you but then you get a dog like a malinois that's gonna say why every time you ask him to do something like well do i have to why should i and you're going to constantly have to convince them that you are in charge and that you're, you know what you're doing. So those are not the, the right dogs for like first time dog owners. And another issue that I run into a lot, cause I'm in a lot of like service dog forums and stuff is you'll get a lot of people who need a service dog and they can't afford to buy one or, or don't know how to get the funding for that. So they're like, well, I'm going to go out and get a dog and train it myself. They've never owned a dog. They've never trained a dog and their first dog they're going to train is a service dog. And that's usually a lot of times when you see like fake service dogs, they probably were supposed to be real service dogs, but the person training them, their idea of a good dog is like below the standard of where I start with, with a dog. Yeah. No kidding. What is your favorite breed of dog? Golden retrievers. 100%. The English creams are like my very favorite. Um, a long time ago, they put great Pyrenees in the golden retriever to make them white. Mm -hmm. And the great Pyrenees is so mellow that it kind of softens the golden retriever energy, but they still have that really lovable, like willing to work for you. So I really love the English cream goldens. So where did you, did you go to school? Is there like schooling for what you do or is it a lot of like, kind of like specific trade 
like you got to get this from just doing your research and working under people and apprenticing and stuff like that? Or did you go to school for it? Like, how do you, how do you know what you know? Cause you seem so knowledgeable about dog breeds. Like you're, you're pulling off these dog breeds. I'm like, I've never even heard of this <laughs> thing before. Yeah, there are schools. Um, most of the schools out there though, only teach one type of training, which is all pure positive, which there's, there's a time and a place for that, but it won't fix everything. You know, for my, my type of training, I use a lot of different techniques from a lot of different types and I kind of mix them together in the way I need them to work. You know, so like a lot of those schools only teach you one and that just isn't going to fly for the real world. So I went to a lot of apprenticeships. I worked under a lot of trainers. I worked for free for like the first three years, like where I had two other jobs and did an apprenticeship under somebody. Um, and then finding someone who's been doing it a long time, has a good reputation and working under them for long enough that you feel comfortable. That's how I did it. And I think that's one of the best ways to do it. And then also workshops. There are tons of workshops. Usually the best trainers have workshops that you can go to. Um, I'm a member of the IACP, which is International Association of Canine Professionals. And they hold this once a year in different states all over where it's like hundreds of trainers come in and teach. And so there's like tons of the, the top trainers in the United States coming and teaching at these workshops. And you stay for like a weekend or like, you know, three to five days and you can go to hundreds of different workshops during that time. So doing that is a good way to kind of get your knowledge up. You kind of already have to be a professional to do that. So like if you work under a professional, you can get a membership as an associate to a, a professional. Wow. So that's a good way to kind of get your foot in the door. Uh, that's amazing. It seems like there's a really strong community within the dog training world. Like you're saying, they have these like seminars and stuff. There's forums, all of this that I would have never even knew existed. Yeah, there's a lot. And the interesting thing is that like the different types of training tend to have their own forums. So like I did behavioral training for a long time, which means I'm fixing dogs with, with behavior, which doesn't mean it's all one type of training, but it's that focus. And then there are people who do like protection and sport work and stuff. And I don't know any of them. And there are people like, oh, you must know this trainer. He's really well known. I'm like, oh, but he does protection. I've never been interested in that. So I've never even heard that name before. You yeah, know? it's kind of like karate, taekwondo and MMA, yeah. like the fighting style. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I kind of want to touch on this, but you, we don't have to go down this road, but I'm a little interested. You said you suffer from PTSD. Yeah. So like... I got diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder right out of high school. And that's been like a lifelong battle of ups and downs and just medications, things of that nature. Were you, did you, when did you recognize you had PTSD? Like, I was diagnosed at, right out of high school too. Oh, um, were you? And I had always had issues, which I don't know if you remember back when we knew each other. It was a little weird sometimes, you know. Um, and it just it just makes me react a little differently to things than other people would. I'm more likely to go into fight or flight over something silly, you know. But over the years, like I've done lots of medications. I've done lots of therapy, you know, just a lot of different things. And I had gotten to a point where I was feeling pretty good. But there were still some things like going into grocery stores alone. I just couldn't do it. I would pull up to Walmart and sit in my car for an hour trying to talk myself into opening the door and then I'd go home without really? going in because I just couldn't get out of the car and having a service dog with me made it so I didn't have to bring a person with me to be my emotional person, you know, <laughs> come, come be my service person. I'll walk through the store. So having a service dog with me just opened so many different options for me because I didn't have that anxiety anymore. Well, that's awesome. And it's... I don't know what really what it is. It's just like knowing that there's something else there that's going to let me know when I'm in trouble. 
Um, and also for me, it's a good way to kind of like redirect people is like, if I'm feeling uncomfortable, I'm like, look at the cute dog. <laughs> and then I'll look down there instead of up at me, you know? So it kind of helped me a little bit in that way too. Oh, that's awesome. That's, that's funny that you, it's not funny, but it's in compare contrast. Like I have no problems with going into a grocery store, but where my anxieties come from is, uh, like I have hypochondria health anxieties. Oh no. So like a doctor's office, I don't want to go in that place. <laughs> I'll sit out in the car and be like, why am I going? You know what I mean? Yeah. What are they going to tell me? You know, in those situations, that's where deep pressure therapy comes in. Cause like there are times where I'll be in the car and I'm like, okay, I can like, I'm ready to get out. My dog will be like, Hey, alert. You're anxious. I'm like, ah, oh, crap. Okay. I thought I was good. I'm not. So I'll sit back down. I'll try and do some deep breathing and grounding exercises. And if that doesn't work, I'll pull the dog over and have her do deep pressure. And we, we do like breathing exercises where you try to lift the dog's head on the end and let it drop. And you count how many times the dog heads go, you know, so you're using the dog and you're petting them and you're smelling them. And so they always have to smell good, you know, it's so like all these different things that you can do to just bring yourself away from the thing. That's like, what could go wrong to I'm in the moment right now and everything is fine. Oh, that's awesome. And then you help your son with a uh, service animal as well. Has that benefited him quite a bit? Oh, so much. Um, he's getting to a point now where we don't necessarily need her all the time, but we always take her just in case. Um, but he suffers from PTSD from some things that happened to him. And he's also ADHD, oppositional defiance disorder, and likely on the spectrum. We did a preliminary and they said it's really likely. Um all those things mixed together are awful. <laughs> so, uh, we used to have a lot of issues if we tried to go in public, which of course is where I'm the most anxious. So maybe some of that was feeding into him, but he would have meltdowns in the middle of the store, like where he's kicking and biting and screaming and and then he'd run away sometimes and like hide places. And so it was just like, I couldn't just shop. I had to always like be looking at him. And if you tried to hold on to him, he'd freak out. He hated being grabbed onto, which is a really big problem for a lot of kids who are autistic because they just don't like being grabbed. But then if you don't grab them, they go off and disappear somewhere, you know? Um, so when his, he was younger, his service dog wasn't old enough yet. So we used like the ones that were in training. I would just teach them this so that while I had them, I could use them. But I would teach them to tether to him and they would be me holding the leash. He'd be tethered to them so that if he tried to run, the leash would stop him. The thing hooked around his belt and he'd be like, oh, I'm supposed to stay here. And then if he let go of the leash or the harness, I would, we'd stop, put on the brakes. I'm like, oh, that's the brakes. If you let go, we have to stop for a minute. So you need to grab it if you want to go, which also gave him the ability to say, hey, I need to stop. So he'd just drop it when he needed to stop. We would all stop. We would take a minute, you know, or if he was just getting distracted, I could redirect him back to holding on to the vest you know, and now he doesn't always need it. And also with like the meltdowns, the deep pressure therapy was amazing because he wouldn't let me hug him when he was like that, but he'd let the dog lay on him. And so when he was freaking out in the store, I'd just bring the dog in. She'd come in and lay on top of him and they would just do breathing exercises and then we'd go about our business. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That's amazing. I always, I always got to applaud uh, parents who have um, children that have special needs because being a parent in its own. I'm not a parent, but I imagine it is the hardest, most rewarding job you're ever going to have. And then when you have a child that suffers from special needs, such as autism or something like that, that's a whole nother set of um, challenges that you have to do. So that's awesome that you're being able to use your expertise to make your position and your son's position better in life and in your guys's mental health. Yeah, definitely. And on a, it is a little bit taxing because he needs the dog a lot so honestly like doing the one dog at a time from home is also kind of result of needing to go to his school so often and take his service dog to him he's getting a lot better this year but last year it was there like 
every day. So they'd call me like, hey, he's having a hard time. You need to bring his dog down. And so we'd go in and some days I would just stay the whole day. You know, I'm like, well, he's having a rough morning. So I'm just going to hang out and see how this goes. Rough day. I'm just going to hang out here. So I don't have to keep driving back and forth. Wow. So it's definitely really challenging. Um, but it also kind of gives me like that helping with other kids with autism. It gives me that sense of like understanding and like realizing if they just knew how to use the dog correctly, it would change so much for them, you know, and like little things like when I'm having an anxiety attack and my son's having a meltdown, his has to take priority. And when I'm anxious, I drop things all the time. And that makes me more anxious because I'm dropping things everywhere. And so almost every service dog that comes through, no matter what they're for, I also teach them how to pick up dropped items so that while they're in training with me, they can just help me out, you know, which is for like kids with autism. Like it's great to be able to have that hand. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. Um, Again, what was your business name and website? Um, my current business is Foyas Foundation Service Dogs. And the one I had before was Kung Fu Canine. Kung Fu Canine? Yeah. Oh, that's a cool name. Yeah, people always thought I did like protection dogs because it's Kung Fu, like fighting. And in my mind, it's like Kung Fu is a lot about like meditation and finding that inner peace and like that tranquility and stuff. And that's the side I was taking with it, which is what we taught. So. so that's so people can go to this website to learn more about you, the services you provide and get in touch with you if they do need a service animal. Yeah, the Foyas Foundation, uh, dot com, and it's spelled F-O-I-A-S, which is a weird, that's my last name now, so FoyasFoundation.com, they can go there, and there's like applications that they can download, and they just email them in, uh, and they can always message me on there, call me, email me, whatever they need for questions, because a lot of people just don't even know where to start, and if even if I don't have the right service dog for them, I usually know the right place to send them. And you're currently just doing service animal work. You don't do any of the behavioral stuff anymore. No, I don't. Um, every now and then, like if a neighbor is having an issue with the dog, I'll go help the neighbors. But for the most part, that's not something that I do as part of my business. Yeah, you just moved on from that. Yeah, there's so people... many young trainers that just want to do that. I'm like, you guys can do that. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free. You want the dog to bite you, go for it. I mean, I've, I've not really ever been bit by a dog, but there's been so many close calls that I'm like, oh, man. And it does kind of, it taxes you after a while. Do you work with any other animals or is it primarily uh, dogs? Just dogs, really. I wanted to do horses when I was younger, and then I realized how expensive horses are. Oh. So, like, maybe dogs would be better. They are a ton of money. I don't think people realize how much, especially when you get into the certain breeds and, like, racing horses. Have you done anything with horses like that? No. I just remember uh, my honeymoon. We went to Louisville, Kentucky, and we went to Churchill Downs. And we went through like the stables and stuff and they were talking about the prices of the horses. I was like, this <laughs> horse was over a million dollars. More than I'll make in a lifetime. <laughs> <one horse>. yeah. <laughs> and then I, I know a few people who have horses and just not, not only the expense of getting the animal, but feeding them, having the area for them and everything. Like I've always thought it would be really cool to have horses, but you got to have a lot of land. Yeah. And, yeah, and that's just something I'm like, I'm not going to have that. Like maybe someday I'd like to get into it because I rode horses a lot and I worked with some trainers and stuff, but I kind of just let that fall so that I could focus on on dogs. On dogs. Yeah, because I was going to say, when I uh, I remember when you were uh, in high school and coming out of high school, you worked for that um, Camp Christopolis. Is that thing still there? I think so, yeah, Camp Christopolis. Is that what it's called? Yeah, I'm like murdering the name, Christopolis. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it is. They might have changed the name, actually. I feel like they, because that was a hard name for kids with disabilities to actually say, so I think they changed it like Camp Williams. Or, no, that sounds like something wrong, but the, it's some other name, but it's still in the same place. Yeah, it's still up, um, was it up Mill Creek Canyon or something like that? Uh, 
or immigration one of those two immigration oh yeah it's up like, immigration <laughs> it's by ruth steiner yeah right, yeah right past there okay yeah that's right it's right past there do you ever miss that um no no <laughs> it was so far away it was just so much work to get out there but i miss working with horses and honestly though that kind of it was kind of similar to what i'm doing now because we would get kids with disabilities who were terrified of the horses and we would teach them how to brush them and we would do little games where like we'd lead the horses around with them on it and they'd pretend like they were the ones steering you know things like that or um, we do games like around the world for kids who had mobility problems where they could turn in the saddle and practice their mobility things but make it about the horse so that it doesn't feel like they're having to work you know yeah that was really cool and it, it just kind of taught me a lot about how to interact with the different disabilities and be respectful and like you know how they want to be treated as well yeah, exactly. That's a whole another skill that people yeah. that it, it takes a lot of time to master that as well. Because um, I work um, in my profession, I'm training drivers. That's my main job. But since we're always short drivers, I'm always driving as well. And primarily, I work in uh, the regular ed world. But um, every once in a while, I go to special ed, and I just I enjoy working with uh, children with special needs. It's just it's so rewarding to me. And when you start to learn their mannerisms and things, I remember I was working with this uh, nonverbal autistic child for a whole summer. He was on the route that I was covering. And I would always talk to him because I always treat him like I would treat anyone. Yeah. Um, and I always, well, I always thought he was nonverbal. And then all of a sudden, his very last day, I was like, okay, enjoy the rest of the summer and we'll see you next year. And all. he was like, thank you. And I was like, what? it just like made my heart go like, Oh my gosh. Yeah, the circle now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It does feel good. And it's it, for me too. It's like when I go to do these like hands-on training courses with the people, like understanding, like they have a physical disability, they're not going to be able to walk as far or like they have, and I, I usually go into really good depth. We do a lot of zoom calls and stuff beforehand. So I kind of know what to expect because I want it to be as safe and comfortable for them as possible because I know like they have to be in a vulnerable place. They have to tell me all their problems. They have to meet some random stranger and show them like they're going to have episodes in front of me. Like it's a lot of work. It's very stressful. It's likely to trigger something, you know? Um, and so they have to put a lot of trust into me. And so I try to make it as comfortable and easy for them as I can. Well, I think you're doing an awesome job and I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast and kind of giving us a glimpse into what it takes to be a canine trainer. Is that what the official term is? It's more for like police dog, for police yeah, dogs, service dog trainer, service dog trainer. Well, there you go. Thank you very much, Allison. Go check out her website. If you guys have any need for a service animal here in the future, and we'll catch you all on the next one. Remember, be happy, humble, and humorous out there and treat each other kindly. Mm -hmm.